0: A long time ago, there was a fierce warlord with a band of men who was pillaging and rampaging the countryside. People would hear of this and flee in terror. He arrived at one village where there was a monastery and discovered that all the people had fled and all the monks had fled except one, the Zen master. Upon hearing this, the warlord was incensed that there was someone who wasn't terrorized of him. So he storms off to the monastery in fury and finds the Zen master sitting in the Zendo. He strides up, unsheathes his sword, and says, Don't you know that I am one that can run you through with this sword without blinking an eye? And the Zen master looks at him in the eye and says, don't you know that I am one who can be run through with that sword without blinking an eye? (laughs) And the warlord was so moved by the Zen master's equanimity, he laid his sword at his feet and bowed. So tonight... I want to talk a little bit about this equanimity and about this strength of our being that is within each one of us. We may we, we may not be able to be quite as strong as the Zen master. <laughs> and sometimes these kinds of stories can you know, set up this huge gap (laughs) between where we are and where we think we have to go. But on the other hand, I think that they do point us towards something, you know, to the possibility of what happens when we have a very steady, unmoving mind. That is what equanimity is. Equanimity is the stillness of an unmoving mind, or a non-reactive mind, a mind that is free of attachment. We could say an unconditional acceptance of the way things are. Or we can also say that equanimity is the unshakable balance of mind, rooted in and supported by insight. And when we speak of insight, we have to ask, insight into what? And it's really where we began the retreat, it's insight into the way things are. We're looking at the way things are in their purest form. And the pathway to looking at the way things are in this tradition is through examining and investigating the three characteristics. That's one pathway. So, the three characteristics of existence being uh, uh, impermanence is one, that all things come and go. Nothing, there's no permanence in any of this existence. The second characteristic being that of dukkha or unsatisfactory, the unsatisfactory nature of this existence, or the unreliability of things to give us any satisfaction. And the third characteristic being anatta, or the selfless nature of this existence, which points to the reality that nothing exists by itself that everything is dependent on everything else for its existence. So we say that things are selfless in nature, anatta. So insight into these three characteristics and insight into nibbana or freedom itself, which is the ultimate insight, the insight which cuts through all things. So how do we tap into this storehouse of strength? that each one of us have, has within our own nature. It's truly what we are doing here because what, what gives us, us a sense of being unsteady is when we follow the movements of the mind. You know, it's like what I was talking about this morning. It's when we hop on that train and we find ourselves in all these different destinations and we don't really have so much of a sense of being steady. We're we're moving, we're on a moving moving track. What gives us the sense of being steady is having a connection with the here and now reality. This sense of, we call it presence, presence where we know where we are and connection with the present or the sense of presence gives us a a sense of that unmovingness because in that present moment we're not moving into the past, we're not moving into the future, we're here and it's that movement of mind, not that the mind wouldn't have uh, thoughts of past and future as we've talked about, that's a natural a rising of the mind but we're not, we don't necessarily have to follow it to the point where we lose a sense of presence. We lose a sense of knowing where we are now and it's that, that, that deep connection which, which deepens over time and with practice which really starts to give us that sense of steadiness and strength in our character and our being because we know where we are, we know who we are, and we know where we're standing, or where we're sitting, and that in itself gives us a, a, a steadiness, a, a, a reliability, a, a security, a kind of security in our being which manifests as this equanimity. When we're not following the mind in the way that we usually do, it means that we're not caught up in our habitual tendencies of mind that pull us this way or that way into this or that, that object or that situation, but rather we have more mastery or we have more control over our mind so that our mind isn't the master over us. In fact, we, it's like we know who is the master of this house and it's not the mind. It's not the small, habitual thinking mind So through the meditation and through this clear seeing and clear looking, we begin to look at how these habits are manifesting and and by by not following them and not identifying with them, the habits begin to kind of thaw out. They're not so solid, they're not so frozen, they're not so uh, thick. And we start to have access to more energy because the energy is not bound up in these habitual ways of being. And we start feeling lighter. It's like we start feeling a lightness of our being, a lightness in our heart. Somebody was talking about that in one of the groups today, really noticing how there is a sense of uh, when she's caught up in her thoughts, how she feels angular. You know, kind of angular or solid or frozen and when she isn't so caught up with the thoughts there's more of a sense of flow a sense of lightness more of a sense of, of flexibility in her being and she could really feel begin to feel the difference in her experience in a very tangible way in a very direct way that gave her a sense of feeling lighter and more at ease So this experience of lightness comes about when we are more connected to the impermanent nature of things, when we aren't viewing things or perceiving things so fixed and so solid and so, you know, this is the way it is in a kind of fixed view perspective. But there's more of a sense of openness an open mind and open heart to kind of letting the, the changing nature happen mm-hmm. so that change can be observed in our thinking process. We can see the thoughts come and go. How many different mind states have you had today? How, how many different thoughts have gone through your mind today? <laughs> I mean, it's it's be impossible to even begin to find a number. I mean there's so many <laughs> how many how many um, how many emotions have moved through how many sensations in your body how many different sounds have you heard or how many different tastes when you're eating your food mm-hmm. all this the changes that go on moment to moment to moment and when we become more sensitive which we do as we practice our mindfulness and our uh, awareness, we can start to sense this changing flow of experience. We can start to feel into the the transient nature of things, that, that things aren't so fixed, things aren't so frozen, but there's change happening like the like the storm it wasn't so much of a storm but the rain that came today you know the 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 sky started to change and got darker and then the the clouds formed and the rain came and then it was fast and it was slow it was hard it was soft and all the changes and and i think many of you really appreciated being in that experience of change you could actually feel the effect that it had on you as you became part of that whole changing experience that happened with the weather today. We become, as we, as we get more sensitive to the changing nature, we actually feel more of the immediacy of life. We connect more to the immediacy, like when the meadowlark sings, and our ear just goes to the sound, and we hear the different changing tones, and then it disappears just breaks through, does its magic, and then disappears. But we, when, the pre- when there's presence and there's awareness, we, we can receive that gift. We're there to receive that offering of life. And that life touches us, and we merge with that, and it, and it, it moves us in some way. It changes us in some way. We become altered by that experience. And as, as we continue on with this practice, and I'm sure many of you have experienced, we become more and more sensitive and more a sense of being connected to this immediacy in our life and being having a sense of feeling life flowing through a little bit more uh, authentically or in a real way than we may have before we started the practice. We feel more open, more awake, And and traditionally, in the the Buddha-Dharma teachings, these moment-to-moment, the moment-to-moment phenomena that we experience are called dhammas, called dhammas or or dharmas, actually. It's another way of understanding the word dharma. It's it's more of the the momentary entities of existence are also called dharmas or dhammas. And in every moment, there is the presence of one of these Dhammas. You know, either through one of the sense doors, the the sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, or the mind door of a thought or an image. Mm -hmm. And when we become sensitive, we can actually feel the contact. We can feel the contact in the moment of that sensation on the ear, or the eye, or the, or the skin, or the, the taste, the taste bud opens, we start, the, 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 the being comes alive through this contact, and with this contact arises a feeling, a feeling which is pleasant, or unpleasant, or neutral, somewhere in between with every contact. It'll feel pleasant, or it'll feel unpleasant, or or somewhere in between, kind of a neutral feeling. And it's this feeling which gives rise to a perception or a thought. We come into contact, there's a feeling, and with that feeling comes some kind of recognition of what it is that we're actually perceiving. And this is learned. It's learned through language. It's learned through our growing up. We know what we're perceiving. So the contact, the feeling, and the perception all arise together in an instant when we recognize a sound, a bird, and then we put a label on it. It happens so fast, metal arc. or the, the grass blowing. And, and we start to have a way of interacting with our world through what we've learned, what we've understood through growing up and learning language and learning how to identify our world. Our world starts making sense to us. And we're in immediate contact with this world as it comes into being, as it comes into origin, as it is born in every moment. And through that awareness, we can be present for it in the moment, and then we can also see it start to pass away. We see that it owns sometimes, like the meadowlark, which is such a good example, it just, just for a moment, for an instant, and then it disappears, it dissolves. And if we didn't have the presence in that moment, we m- would have missed it. Maybe some people have never heard of Meadowlark because they haven't been, of an ha- had enough presence of mind or haven't, you know, had the, the time to wander out into the beauty of nature. And so from that contact feeling and perception, the arising of the thought or the labels about what we see, that is what gives rise and forms our story the story of me, the story of our life, the story of this world. those those words are strung together. <laughs> we string them together and we make a story. Mm-hmm. And that's how this world comes into being. We can't, we can't have a world without a story. We can't have the world without creation. We have to have a way that it all comes into being and it comes into being by the Word, Mm -hmm. by the knowing, by the perception. And it's this story which then gives rise to the sense of self, the sense of me, the sense of a being in this world, a person in this world. This is the birth, the birth of me, Mm Or the in, in in Buddhist language you say the becoming, the energy of becoming, the becoming, the birthing of every moment of this of this creation. For ordinary people, this is people who are not exposed to the Dharma or who have not looked at their own minds. This contact with the world can give rise to reactivity because when we have contact with the unpleasantness, which is in every experience is either going to be pleasant or unpleasant, (laughs) and that's moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, hundred thousand million times through the day, contact with pleasant unpleasant, So through that contact with the unpleasant, if we're not really understanding how this whole thing comes into birth, we can get caught in our reactions to the unpleasant and not really understand that how this is actually forming, how the the dukkha, the dukkha of the pain and the suffering that arises through this reactivity of both grasping and aversion and, and the desire and the anger, and the greed, and all these difficult emotions that we've been talking about, who really don't understand how this dukkha comes into being. I want to um, share with you a very important discourse of the Buddha. And some of you here have heard this before. It's the... Um, The Discourse of the Two Arrows. And I want to share it again because it really is one of my favorite ones because I think it really does point to how this dukkha arises for us. So the Buddha was giving a discourse to his monks and he said, Oh monks, What's the difference between an unenlightened disciple and a noble, enlightened one? What's the difference? Both experience unpleasant feelings, pleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. So what's the difference between these two people? One who is an ordinary, unenlightened disciple and one who is noble? or a well-instructed, learned disciple. And he goes on giving this example. He says, When an unenlightened disciple encounters unpleasant feeling, he sorrows, grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest, becomes distraught, and experiences two kinds of painful feelings, a physical feeling and a mental feeling. So he's using the example of an unpleasant feeling in the physical body, and then the mental pain that arises in reaction to that. So he says, he, when he encounters an, un- an unenlightened, ordinary disciple, he says when he um, encounters this unpleasant feeling, because he goes into reactivity, he experiences two kinds of painful feelings, one physical and one mental. And he gives an analogy, he says, it's as if an archer, after firing one arrow into a certain man, were then to fire a second arrow, that man would experience pain from both arrows. He experiences two kinds of pain, physical and mental. He says, when a noble, enlightened one encounters unpleasant feeling, He neither sorrows, grieves, laments, nor wails, beats his chest, nor becomes distraught. He experiences only one kind of pain, physical pain, but not mental pain. He says and uses the analogy, just as if an archer, having shot one arrow into a certain man, were to shoot a second arrow but miss the mark. That man would experience pain only from one arrow. He experiences one pain in the body, but not in the mind. I think it's an important discourse because the Buddha's pointing to the fact that we don't need to get shot by the second arrow. And also brings up the question of who is actually shooting the second arrow. Who is the archer of the second arrow when we feel the two kinds of pain? I think it's a good reflection when we think about pain, physical pain, and the pain we have in our body, and the whole kind of overlay that we can put on top of the pain because of all the feeling sorry for ourselves and worrying about what's going to happen and feeling fear of the future and, and all, that, all the extra that comes about through not seeing clearly what's actually happening. That there's just pain, physical, unpleasant unpleasant experience moving through the body. Do we have to shoot the second arrow and what does it really mean to shoot that second arrow? Do we have any choice about that? I think it's also an important reflection if we also, sometimes I like to, to extend the analogy to think about how when we have mental pain, say we've already shot that second arrow and we're already feeling the uh, mental pain, the anguish, the reaction, the, the, the uh, irritation, the, the whole thing arising in the mind, don't we often then shoot a third arrow? Why am I treating, why do I treat myself like this, why do I get down myself, why do I give myself such a hard time? And then it's even possible to shoot the fourth arrow, judging, the judging, the judging, the judging, the judging. (laughs) How do we stop doing it? How do we stop? It seems that we need to recognize at some point that we're shooting these arrows. And also that perhaps there's one arrow that we can't stop, and that's the physical, the physical body. There's no way to stop the physical pain in the body. It's impossible as human beings. This body is decaying. <laughs> From the moment that we are born, it's a downhill slope. Well, it's <laughs> <laughs> fortunately we have about—if uh, we're lucky—about a hundred years. <laughs> but you know, it's not going to get a lot better. You know, so this body breaks down. This body falls apart. This body decays. It happens to different ones of us to different degrees at different times of our life, and it's the way it is. It's just the way it is. And coming to a recognition and an acknowledgement of this truth, of this body, is the is the bringing about of the equanimity, the attitude of the equanimity of the unmoving mind. This is the way it is. A body is like this. A body is like this. A sick body is like this. A painful body is like this. And then, if we're not able to come into a place of acceptance about that, we start shooting the arrows. And so the Buddha points out that this can be avoided. Through understanding, through clear, clear seeing, through practice, through mindfulness, this is the way we come to a place of freedom. This is the way we come to a place of ease. This is the way we start to experience more contentment in our life because we come to a place of acceptance with what is. When we see what is, then we may be able to come back to that sense of the Dhammas unfolding, just pleasant feeling, or unpleasant feeling, pain, sensation, coming and going, coming and going, arising and passing. And if we bring this kind of perception, contact, feeling, perception, to our experience, this is the wisdom that brings freedom. This is the wisdom that starts cutting through, breaking through this solidified view of who I take myself to be, and who I am, and the pain that I have in my body, the pain I have in my life, and we start experiencing life in more of these moment-to-moment, incremental, uh, uh, pr- present in present time. And when we see the Dhammas as Dhammas, whether it's the body, the mind, the, the experience, uh, the, the life around us, then we start to feel the lightness. We feel the lightness of the Dhammas themselves. No, And perhaps you've had the experience sometime when you've actually been able to take your attention go right into the pain, right into the center of pain. And sometimes we can't do it for very long, but we may be able to do it just for a few moments and then we can just feel what's actually happening there, that it's kind of vibration or it's a kind of a, a feel of density or tightness and, and maybe some light, you know, light or heat and it starts breaking up into more discrete uh, entities, moment-to-moment-moment. It's not so solid the way the concept pain brings when we think about the concept of pain. And it's very hard, it'd be very, very difficult to maintain that kind of perception with something that's so unpleasant and so painful, so the attention moves away. We move out. We move to another Dhamma something else, something, you know, some sound or breath or sensation, some other sensation that's happening in the body. So these Dhammas have a lightness. They bring about the experience of lightness. And on the last retreat I was on with a teacher named Guy Armstrong, he was talking about these Dhammas and he said that these Dhammas are so light It's as if they never departed from the ultimate ground of being. And it takes a subtlety to understand this. These Dhammas are so light, it's as if they never departed from the ultimate ground, from their source of being, source of creation that that becomes so imperceptible that don't even seem to exist anymore. Where are they? We just have a sense of the lightness of things, the lightness of being, almost as as if we're floating through our life at times. We can, this this sense of of contact, it's hardly even a, a contact with what? It doesn't even seem—it's so imperceptible, so light. We don't even feel anything anymore. We just feel the the, the 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 light of our of our of our consciousness being awake, the brilliancy of perception. But but that's all sometimes. But experience itself never stops. It's just that as we come more into the present, experience reveals itself immediately. There's an immediate sense of what is, right here and now. So we don't need to look for anything else. We don't have to try to get outside of our experience to something else or or underneath or, or think that there's some other experience that I'm missing out on or... No, it's just, it's all right here. Immediately, happening, right now, right here now. And we can come into this sense of aliveness, of life happening in these moments. Whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, it makes no difference. When we when we start to perceive life in this way, it really makes no difference whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Ajahn Sumedho, the uh, abbot I spoke of the other night, he said that in a way, this kind of relationship to life is like being willing to stand under a waterfall, being willing to stand under the waterfall of life, and just letting ourselves being soaked with the experience whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Another analogy is as if we were a carriage bearing a load of weight, it's just bearing that letting life impact if we can, this is, this is what we, when we start to touch this equanimity of allowing life to be as it is. And this is a noble way of being in life. This is an empowering way of being in life and being in relationship to life because we let go of our demand that life will give us what we want. We're not, we're not pushing in a way on experience saying, no, I don't want this one, I want that one. So when we let go of that demand, there's an openness to receive, to be receptive to what is. And in a way, we're also letting go of our demand that things remain permanent, that things remain in a certain way. I want things to be like this now and forever. And we know what happens when we do that. It's suffering because life is going like this. Life is moving. Life is shaking. Life is changing. Nothing is staying the same, but we're holding on. (laughs) And we feel that vibration. We feel the restlessness. We feel the dukkha of that holding on. So maybe... Maybe we're getting shaken up so that maybe we'll have to finally let go. (laughs) We won't be able to hold on. It's like holding on to something that's just vibrating so fast and saying, no, you can't hold on anymore. Let go. (sighs) So this is the wisdom that manifests as equanimity, an unshakable balance of mind that is rooted in insight this equanimity manifests as a presence. You can get a sense of this as I speak about it. It's a presence. And this presence gets stronger and stronger and when you're around people who have this presence, you feel it. You know, it's almost tangible, this this steadiness that people have, some people have in themselves. And it's very potent, very powerful. And it's a presence that is an experience it, that is on an expression of the awakened heart, the awakened mind. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an expression, a manifestation of this awakened being, awakened heart. And, it, and as we grow in our practice, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And if you've ever had the opportunity to sit with a great master or to be close to near a great master, the, the power that is being—it's pouring out of that of those beings is is, is overwhelming. It, it it kind of just blows the mind, literally. And I've had that experience where my mind has been blown, like a like a, a the the fuse is you know too many amps, and the circuits just go <laughs> because of the power of this of the of the of the being of the awakened mind. Jack Cornfield calls this sacred, at this level, sacred equanimity or even divine apathy. It's an interesting way of thinking about it, divine apathy. We're not so caught up in the way things are. And this is what arises in the deep stages of practice, like that Zen master. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's equanimity that allows us, allows us to be fully in our life. It allows us to face that which is pleasant without attachment or indulg- indulgence. And it allows us to face the unpleasant without drowning in our sorrow in our despair, our anger, our aversion. And this is what gives that steadiness of mind. Now I want to read you another story and then just turn this on its head just a little bit just to give you another little angle of this equanimity. This is the parable of the mustard seed, and some of you have heard this too. It's a very, very potent teaching from the Buddha, from the time of the Buddha. Gatami was her family name, but because she tired easily, she was called Kisa Gatami, or Frail Gatami. She was born in a poverty-stricken house, and and when she married, she went to the house of her husband's family to live. There, because she was the daughter of a poverty-stricken house, they treated her with contempt. After time, she gave birth to a son, and then they accorded her with respect. But when that boy of hers was old enough to play and run hither and about, he was stricken with illness and died. Ailing in grief, she carried the body of her dead child everywhere asking for help, for medicine to bring him back to life. But of course no one could help her. Wherever people encountered her, they said, Where did you ever meet with medicine for the dead? So saying, they clapped their hands and sent her away. A certain wise man saw her and thought, this woman must have been driven out of her mind by sorrow for her son. But no one else is likely to know of medicine for her except the Buddha. Said he, woman, as for medicine for your son, for the foremost individual in the world of men and the world of gods, the Buddha resides at a neighboring monastery. Go to him and ask. The man speaks the truth, thought she, and she went on her way. Taking her son on her hip, she took her stand in the outer circle of the congregation around the seated Buddha. And when it was her turn, she said, Oh, exalted one, please give me medicine for my son and bring him back to life. The Buddha replied, You did well, Gautami, in coming hither for medicine. I'll give you some, but first you must do something for me. You must go to the village and get me a handful of mustard seed, which was the most common Indian spice, and from this I will fashion a medicine for your child. There is one more thing, however," the Buddha said. The mustard seed must come from a home where no one has died where no one has lost a child, or a parent, a spouse, or a friend. Kisa Gotami ran into the village and ran into the first house begging for mustard seed. Please, please, may I have some grains of mustard seed? And the people, seeing her grief, responded immediately. But then she asked, as she was instructed, has anyone in this home died? Has a mother, or a daughter, or a father, or a son? What you say, Gautami, here it is impossible to count the dead. Well then, I will not take it. And she ran away and ran to the next house. Again they offered her mustard seed, and again she asked, Has anyone here died? And found out the younger daughter had died, and at the next house it was the maiden aunt. And so she went house after house in this village. There was no household she could find which had not known death. Finally, she understood in the entire city this must be the way. The Buddha, full of compassion for the welfare of mankind, must have seen. Overcome with emotion, she carried the body of her dead son back to the Buddha. There her son was buried with all proper rights. As her son was cast away in the burning ground, she uttered these words. No village law no law of market town, no law of a single house compares to this. Of all the world and of all the worlds of gods, the only, this only is the law that all things are impermanent." She then bowed to the Buddha and asked him for the teachings that would bring her wisdom and refuge in this realm of birth and death. And she herself took these teachings deeply to heart and became a great yogi and a wise woman. So even for Gotami, who certainly wouldn't have been able, or in any state, to look at her experience, through contact, feeling and perception and how her suffering was was rising in her mind and investigate the Dhammas so that she could feel a lightness of being. But even so, through the teachings and through the instruction that the Buddha gave her, she still came back to the underlying teaching which runs through all things, which is the law of impermanence. So sometimes we might be in great grief. We might have very strong states of, of mind that, that the, where the story needs to play through. You know, we, we do have stories. We do have conditioning. We do have a life that's unfolding. And sometimes in that life, there are times of great loss, times of great upset, when we don't get what we want, we lose what we love. A lot, we're, well, we, we, we become ill, we, we lose a sense of what we had, and that grief runs through. And this grief cannot be cut off this isn't what the teachings are pointing to, and sometimes when we, get, when we start deconstructing experience in such a way and we really start looking at the minute Dhammas unfolding, and we can almost get a sense, and I've, I've had a sense of some practitioners where we can get so good at cutting off experience where we actually aren't even feeling life in its fullness in a different way, where we're not letting the story of our life unfold, the life of, 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 of you and me and our families and our children and, and our mothers and our fathers, uh, that richness of life. And we don't want to deconstruct life in such a way that there's nothing here anymore, that it's just, it's kind of, it, it, we see so much of the emptiness or the, the non-existent nature that we're, we've kind of annihilated ourselves. And that's an extreme View. That's not what's being talked about here. And so I wanted to read the story of Gautami because you can see how powerful it is that even in that unfolding for Gautami, she came to a very powerful insight, a very powerful awakening, an awakening into the law of impermanence. And so the deepest part of ourselves, even when we have difficult mind states, we can still bring our wisdom of impermanence to everything that we do, through the grief, through the anger, through the sadness, knowing that this too is impermanent. This too is not going to last and we can allow ourselves to feel and to engage and be part of and open to the life that is flowing through us knowing that this too will change. Nothing is permanent. And in that way we really can open to our life as it's here because we know that even this body is impermanent and it will take its last breath as all things do. So these teachings pay great respect to the way things are. We really don't have to change anything. Nothing really has to be different than it is. We only want to come into understanding of its nature so that we can engage with life in a more authentic way, in a more real way, in an honest way, a true way, in a way where we are deeply connected with life. We're not separate. We're not cut off from life. But we find a way in. We find a way through. And in that way, we really can open to our life as it's here because we know that even this body is impermanent and it will take its last breath as all things do. So these teachings pay great respect to the way things are. We really don't have to change anything. Nothing really has to be different than it is We only want to come into understanding of its nature so that we can engage with life in a more authentic way, in a more real way, in an honest way, a true way, in a way where we are deeply connected with life. We're not separate. We're not cut off from life. But we find a way in We find a way through. We find a way where we find ourselves swimming in the ocean of existence. No longer are we like the fish in the ocean who goes up to the other fish and says, Can you please tell me where the ocean is? I belong in the ocean and I want to swim. Can you tell me where the ocean is? But we recognize that we're already swimming. We're already swimming in this great ocean. This great ocean of impermanence. So let's sit together for a few minutes.